The best in Bitcoin made audible. You're listening to Bitcoin Audible with Guy Swan. Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, and we have a really fun read today. Uh, this is going to be one that uh, I really love to push back on. We'll get into it in just a second. Uh, just to start off with a, uh, a thank you to swanbitcoin.com for supporting the Audible of the Bitcoin space. They are the ones helping to keep this project alive so that you can listen to the best in Bitcoin. When you want to set up your Bitcoin savings account, make sure you go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. Today's read on Bitcoin Audible is the Bitcoin government battle is vaporware. This is by Jesse Lawler, uh, a good friend of mine in the Crypto Economy crew and a resident statist debater in our, in our group. Um, and uh, I love debating with him. And we go back and forth all the time, sometimes on Twitter, sometimes in DMs. Uh, and it's always great to push back. And one of the ideas that he is always pushed back on is the fact that government is going to be anti-Bitcoin, that there's going to be this big battle. And I have always inherently thought that that was kind of going to be a natural progression. So I'm uh, reading his article uh, uh, in the argument towards the negative, And I just want to dig into this idea and then push back in Guy's take afterward. Um, just so you know, uh, Lawler Palooza is his tag on Twitter, and he hosts the Smart Drug Smarts podcast. Um, so be sure to check him out. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the article right now. Again, this is titled, The Bitcoin Government Battle is Vaporware. For Bitcoiners, it is something of a parlor game to think of ways Bitcoin could be killed. In its decade-long history, the world's first cryptocurrency has already dodged numerous bullets. Exchange hacks, software bugs, ideological civil wars, massive price crashes, being labeled rat poison by Warren Buffett, and no less than 370 Bitcoin is Dead articles, published by writers who've consistently been premature in their vulture-like stance. So far, rain or shine, Bitcoin has always taken its lumps, dusted itself off, and gone on producing blocks, to the glee of its fans and the astonishment of its detractors. But, like a plucky video game character advancing to bigger scraps with tougher bad guys, Bitcoin has larger fights coming. And Bitcoin's user community, like Xbox-watching friends yelling at Vice from the couch, spends a lot of time speculating about the next fight, the optimal strategy, and how they'd play if they were the ones behind the controller. For many, the ultimate fight they imagine to be coming is the showdown that will happen when governments, quote, wake up to Bitcoin, become scared for their own national currencies, and rouse themselves to go on the offensive. The apocalyptophilia goes something like this. Bitcoin will be declared illegal. Anyone who's ever held a Coinbase account will be forced to renounce their private keys and swear monetary allegiance to the dollar, euro, etc., Armed drones will deliver incendiary grenades to any building found with an open port 8333 on its internet router. This, my friends, is a fever dream. Before I begin, let me admit my biases. I love dystopian science fiction as much as the next guy. 
I love dystopian sci-fi as much as the next guy, even when the next guy is a fellow Bitcoiner. And yes, as a group, we love dystopian sci-fi about 50 times more than the average person. Bitcoin, after all, sprung from a nest of cypherpunks. Why is sci-fi and cypherpunkery relevant to this popular delusion? Because the big bad final boss in the cypherpunk genre, going back as far as George Orwell, is always a high-tech, neo-fascist, all-seeing government. So naturally, like David vs. Goliath or the Rebel Alliance vs. the Galactic Empire, eventually, Satoshi's band of pseudonymous code freaks and their Austrian economics pals are destined to square off against the central bankers that have dominated international finance for the past century. These monetary villains have inflated away over 95% of the U.S. dollar's purchasing power since the inception of the Fed. Astonishingly, the dollar seems to have gotten off lucky compared to most other currencies. So, if Bitcoin doesn't fight this epic monetary bad guy, then what happens? Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but the Wachowskis will not be directing this movie. Bitcoin's future history is going to merit a Ken Burns-style documentary, not an action flick. Goliath Shrugged The cartel system of global central banking has been, without question, the most successful tool in history for wealth extraction. Gold bugs, Bitcoiners, and anyone who has done even minimal research into the history of fractional reserve banking already understands this. The Cantillon effect is real, and it is spectacular. Despite all this, I'm telling you that the beneficiaries of this most excellent of cons, the people who even now are reaping ill-gotten gains through the expansion of the world's money supply, are going to leak away their power without a fight. There will be no monetary Armageddon. The revolution will not be worth televising. I'm making this rather bold prediction that I know few people will agree with, but I'm confident in doing so, and here's why. The world's central banking cartel isn't best compared to the biblical Goliath. If we keep things sci-fi, a better comparison would be Jean-Luc Picard's nemesis from Star Trek The Next Generation, the Borg. Decentralization goes both ways. Decentralization is what makes the internet impervious to nuclear attack. Decentralization is what makes Bitcoin permissionless and uncensorable. Decentralization is what makes mosquitoes the world's deadliest animal, despite the bigger, toothier competition. But while we Bitcoiners are conditioned to think of decentralization as a slam-bang strategy for defense, this isn't always true. Decentralization is a great strategy when a small sliver of survivorship can get the job done. If the name of the game is eradication avoidance, then decentralization is your friend. But many contests aren't like this. Sometimes success requires unanimity, or at least a robust majority, if things are to work right. A marching band or a synchronized swim team isn't made more cohesive because it is decentralized. In fact, just the opposite. Its performance is impressive specifically because it is difficult to maintain a unified performance in spite of decentralization. The world's monetary system of co-integrated central banks is decentralized in this second way, the way of marching bands and swim teams, and of the Borg. 
a few people marching out of step or swimming off in the wrong direction will have disastrous, show-stopping consequences. United they stand, divided they fall. The Economics of Conflict You can kill ten of my men for every one I kill of yours, but even at those odds, you will lose and I will win. Ho Chi Minh, 1946 Ho Chi Minh was the father of the modern Vietnamese state, and he spoke the words above as a warning to the French colonial government in the aftermath of World War II. During that war, both the French and the Vietnamese homelands had been occupied by Axis powers, France by the Nazis, Vietnam by Imperial Japan. With geopolitics in post-war flux, Ho Chi Minh wasn't about to passively trade one occupying power for another. Gamblers at the time wouldn't have picked the scrappy Southeast Asians as eventual victors against the French. France was backed by the USA, which had just kicked the ass out of the country that had kicked Vietnam's ass. But Ho Chi Minh saw the matchup versus France in a different way, stripped down to its brutal economic reality. It was much, much cheaper for the Vietnamese to kill Frenchmen than for occupying Frenchmen to kill Vietnamese. In a war of attrition, Ho Chi Minh knew he would win. In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto designed a system with economic realities similar to those which made the underdog Vietnamese successful against the French in 1954 and later the Americans in 1975. Ho could put combatants into the field inexpensively and not just the, quote, men with guns kind of combatants. The televised optics of an industrialized country's military suppressing a determined underdog that only wanted to be left alone created allies among the decentralized public within the enemy nations. It wasn't Vietnam's battlefield strength, but a slow splintering of its enemy's will to fight that eventually yielded victory. I am Bitcoin. I am Legion. Satoshi's system, Bitcoin, was designed with incentives such that, for its entire 11-year history, it has always been more economically rational to help Bitcoin than to fight against it. With a handful of exceptions made up of vanishingly few people, that bold statement is true for every human on Earth. In the decentralized network of human society, each person is a potential convert to side with Bitcoin versus the central bank's monetary monopolies. Siding with the central banks gets you the status quo you're already enjoying. Is that a golf clap I hear? Unless you're a top banking executive or hold a regulatory role that earns you licit or illicit profits from the banking industry, there's nothing in it for you to fight against free market monetary competition. If central banks impel their respective nation-states to move against Bitcoin, you stand nothing to gain. On the other hand, should you at any point decide to invest a triflingly small amount of your personal savings into Bitcoin, on the off chance that like-minded others will do the same, and proceed to go about your life, you have a plausible chance of making massive returns from your passive investment. Footnote. Thus far in Bitcoin's history, there has never been a period where you could buy and hold for three years and not be able to sell at a profit. During most three-year spans, the profits would be dramatic. 
Are such everyday Bitcoin owners active foot soldiers in an epic battle against government-backed currencies? Not at all. But do they have a dog in the proverbial fight? Sure. Will they want their governments to take overt action against their investment? Of course not. There are, based on know-your-customer banking records from government-sanctioned Bitcoin exchanges, at least 10 million Americans who have registered for an account through which they can buy Bitcoin. It is estimated there are 30 million Bitcoin owners worldwide. The Trojan horse is already empty. Of the 10 million plus Americans sitting on a little Bitcoin, or maybe a lot, how many of these are politicians? How many are regulators? How many work inside the banking system? If you know the first thing about investments, you've heard the word diversification. It's the one word you can drop in financial conversations that are otherwise over your head and not sound like a moron. So how many people in the investor class have picked up a little Bitcoin to diversify their investment portfolios outside the traditional asset classes? And can't we assume that people with enough capital to invest exert more than their fair share of pull with the government, demographically speaking? This is a question that answers itself. Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina recently said, quote, The world that Satoshi Nakamoto, author of the Bitcoin white paper, envisioned and others are building is an unstoppable force. We should not attempt to deter this innovation. Governments cannot stop this innovation, and those that have tried have already failed. End quote. This is an out-of-the-closet Bitcoiner. Nobody asked McHenry how much Bitcoin he personally owns. He was among the committee's panel of members, not a witness. But can you really read that quote and have any doubt? Tech giant Google, Alphabet Incorporated, spends over $20 million per year lobbying the U.S. government. At first blush, this seems unrelated to Bitcoin. It's tempting to say, Google is a corporation. They've got people whose job it is to advance their interests. Bitcoin is just a decentralized, pseudonymous network. No one is lobbying on behalf of Bitcoin. But does this assumption really stand up to scrutiny? If you were a Bitcoin whale, one of the early adopters who was either lucky or prescient enough to buy large amounts of Bitcoin when its price was 100 or more times less than it is today, why on earth wouldn't you take out the world's simplest insurance policy on your digital riches? And what is that insurance policy, you ask? It's simple. You insure your investment by putting some Bitcoin directly into the hands of currently neutral legislators who could influence policy in the future. If you had given someone $1,000 worth of Bitcoin exactly three years ago today, one of two things has happened. One, they kept it and are looking at a 2,000% or 20x profit. Two, they sold it some time since, and now they wish they hadn't. Whichever scenario occurred, you would have guaranteed this person understands Bitcoin's potential, and you very possibly created a sleeper cell advocate for future policy. If you are, say, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, founders of the Gemini Exchange and purported owners of 1% of the world supply of Bitcoin, it would practically be fiduciary malpractice not to lobby in this way. Note. I'm not saying that I know any whales are lobbying like this. I am saying it defies common sense to think none of them are. Follow the money. 
Ho Chi Minh beat the odds because he could add allies to his calls cheaply. Satoshi Nakamoto's system can add allies not just cheaply, but profitably. Every new Bitcoiner is not only an interested party, not only a potential cheerleader, but also a small but consequential ratchet raising the value of all the other Bitcoin held by all the other Bitcoiners. The central banks won't mount a fight against Bitcoin because they'll find themselves unable to field an army. At least, not one that can avoid ongoing mass defections. They have no moral authority to inspire troops. They have no booty to promise aside from the status quo. And they have no enemy to demonize except for a globally distributed network with no ideology or ulterior motive. Bitcoin is simply an opt-in, open-source software with the historically reliable property of making its users wealthy. Too long didn't read. If you can't beat them, join them. And this is what more and more no-coiner neutrals will choose to do. The slope from Bitcoin curiosity to toe-dipping to enthusiasm to advocacy is a slippery one indeed. I'm sorry, my cypherpunk friends, but your apocalyptic future war visions will have to wait for the killer robots. The world's national currencies will offer Bitcoin only a sputtering resistance, more in word than deed, and they'll dwindle into irrelevance as their defenders fail to defend, their battlements go unmanned, and the central bank's centers will not hold. The final capitulation will be less William Gibson and more Douglas Adams. Not with a bang, but with a snicker. And that does it for The Bitcoin Government Battle is Vaporware by Jesse Lawler. And uh, I want to, uh, let's, let's take a break here. Uh, and I really want to talk about this piece because there's a lot here that, actually most of it I agree with, but I disagree with, I, I won't get ahead of myself. Let's hit our sponsor real quick and uh, we'll jump into it. Okay, so there's a lot I want to dig into this. First, I'll just say that I really actually agree with almost the entire set of like conditions and the incentives that I think will play out in the sense that there will be a lot of uh, disinterested parties, I guess you could say, and neutral parties that could easily, easily be uh, swayed toward Bitcoin. Like the, the individual interest versus the institutional interest are actually vastly divorced in this this essentially war of attrition, which I think we are moving into. And I certainly hope he is right about the fact that there are a lot of uh, uh, silently influenced, you know, like the Gemini, I mean, the Winklevoss twins, you know, giving, you know, $1,000 in Bitcoin or whatever that like is making converts of people kind of behind the scenes, so to speak, um, and quietly, uh, which... Uh, which, you know, absolutely could be, and I think it will play a major role, but I think, I think what's being discounted here is the institutional interest. Um, the, uh, the one thing that I think will be a major factor that was alluded to early on in the article was the idea that there will not be a cohesive unit working together. Um, like, there are a lot of, quote-unquote, competing central banks, so to speak, 
um, that will be at odds with each other. And I think that's actually in, in the current currency wars and the ongoing like raising tensions and the, the potential impact that Bitcoin could have. Uh, I think that's going to be a major, major factor is that the, the cohesion of the world banking system will begin to break apart. And that will make the fight all the more easier from Bitcoin's perspective because they will essentially be fighting each other to some degree. But that said, we, we also are looking at what is essentially one central bank. Um, like the reserves of all other banks are dollars. Like the, the Federal Reserve is the central bank. So that, that appearance of decentralization, I guess you could say, or the appearance of multiple institutions is really subservience to a single institution. Like it is, it is the Federal Reserve that dominates global trade, and it is the largest by far and the most powerful by far of any central bank. Um, and of course, the government by, uh, uh, by extension uh, in, the, in the geopolitical sphere, in the macroeconomic sphere. Now, going back to, uh, first off, the Federal Reserve absolutely unequivocally has the most to lose out of anyone in this situation. And at the exact same time, the Federal Reserve also has the most resources and the most influence out of anyone in this situation. Um, and I don't see how they go down lightly or that they are simply, you know, just, you know, kicked over or that they do not perceive that there is any sort of a fight just because a couple of people in Congress stood up against them. In fact, it was there. There is no amendment that makes the Federal Reserve um, legal. The Federal Reserve is actually an illegal act passed by Congress, which it wasn't actually passed by Congress. This is this is the most ridiculous thing to me. If you actually dig into the history of the Federal Reserve, um, it's utterly insane how like conspiracy theory ish like just sneaky and crazy the passing of that act actually was it's the most like conspiracy like espionage type story that nobody even disputes like the people involved just a couple of years later after it was passed and everything was you know pushed under the rug it was like okay well now we can talk about it because it doesn't matter we're the federal reserve and we we own everything but they basically admitted to all the truth that they did this in secret, they, that it was in fact the bankers who wrote this act um, in order to implement it. It was uh, passed on Christmas, on, on Christmas Day, while the opposition was actually at home so that they could not vote on it. And it was, it was not established that that was actually going to happen. They did it specifically so the opposition couldn't vote on it. And they didn't actually have support unless they got rid of them. Um, and of course, this was sold uh, to the people as a break the bank trust. It was literally written by all of the major bankers and then sold by its politicians as the solution to the big corrupt banks. Um, and holy crap, if that is not the, the freaking rule of legislation historically, is that like just appeal to the masses in the most ridiculous way possible, just absolute, you know, um, platitudes and, you know, empty statements, call it break the bank trust, and then install a giant central bank owned by the major banks. Like, like that is the very story of politics. But I think there's a lot of really critical historical lessons. And 
uh, more most specifically about the fact that currency has been at the heart has been at the heart of disputes between for every war in recent history for for centuries and I think very likely um, uh, throughout all of history uh, we have very limited knowledge about how how important that role has played um, ongoing in war and but more specifically in kind of our modern age in the last like 200 years really I guess since the creation of the United States like like there was the currency act just before um, like as Benjamin Franklin even even states that he believed the currency act itself was the primary cause for the revolution like that aside from everything else and all the pressures that it was because they were attempting to force their currency on the colonies and what was essentially happening is that the colonies had their own local currency and uh the british came over and basically said uh well what was it uh george good, good old george um passed the currency act that said that the only currency that is legal in the colonies um that they were all going to be forced to use it was credit issued by uh, uh britain's banks um, and that they were only going to be able to use the national currency and they could not have their own independent trade. They were going to have to borrow and pay interest back to Great Britain. That with the rest of the conflict and pressures um, at the time, like within, I think it was like a year, uh, boom, the Revolutionary War. And, you know, go forward a little bit. The War of 1812, I think, is actually even stranger um, because, you know, we're back at war with Great Britain, and it was just after, so they had the first bank of the United States had been issued, the first central bank, and um, I can't remember what president it was during the 1812 situation, but um, uh, basically the, the, the president said, like, you know, we are not going to be uh, something along the lines of slaves to our credit issuer, like we have, we have re-enslaved this country, and we are not going to reinstitute the the charter for the first central bank, or excuse me, the first bank in the United States, which was a central bank owned by the famous, uh, you know, Mayor Amschel Rothschild, the one who um, famously said, uh, "Give me control over the money of a nation, and I don't give a shit who writes the laws." Uh, that one. Um, and he owned that central bank, and uh, they said, nope, we are going to break this. You are not going to get your central bank, and they didn't get their vote. The charter did not get renewed, and he made a, a visceral threat multiple times. He says, if you do not uh, pass this charter, if you do not reissue our charter, you are going to see an absolutely devastating war, and uh, we are going to force it on you. Uh, and then after the charter did not get passed, he restated that. Fine, get ready to see, get ready to be sent back to uh, the colonial age. We're going to like, destroy you, essentially. And uh, within the year, or like within a year or two, uh, they were, the, the very bank, the, the very family, the Rothschilds, were funding the war effort from Great Britain to start a new war with the United States. A bunch of, plenty, you know, plenty of other great um, pressures and, you know, side excuses and uh, met interests uh, along the way. But where was the money coming from? From the central bank in order to institute a new one in the United States. They fought an ongoing ridiculous war. America won, quote unquote. But what did they do? What happened? What was the result? They instituted the second central bank of the United States. How? Why? The deficit. That's the key thing. 
is that the re they they don't it doesn't matter from the banker's perspective from their interests regardless of any secondary third t- tertiary like whatever your other interests are involved with countries hating each other or cultures or you know past history or political squabbles or leaders you know like personal uh, vendettas and stuff whatever whatever else happens to align um the the key thing is that the the banking interests the 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 monetary interests win if they they bury everyone in deficits because you can't fund those deficits for for massive wars like that without having a bank issuing credit and as long as they instill a central bank which is what they did in the united states second bank of the united states um following 1812 even though america won doesn't matter they got what they wanted um uh, so you know why not just let it let it fall why, why would they keep funding the deficits why would they keep funding the war if they got what they wanted then the the amount of like currency fighting and like nuances of the civil war get crazy um, uh, this was actually when Abraham Lincoln took back over, like, like the currency actually, but that's when the greenback came into being and they actually issued it from the treasury again. Cause you know, that's what the constitution says is that the treasury will create the money, will coin the money and determine what its weight and measure is as a currency. And it is Congress's job to, um, to manage it. And the, the history of the United States is a ridiculous history of trading back and forth between whether or not Congress and the Treasury has control over the currency versus whether or not some central bank, one of like, I don't know, what is it, like 10 or something in our history now until the Federal Reserve. I don't know, I guess it's like four or five previous to the Federal Reserve. Um, but, uh, uh, and then obviously the Federal Reserve has been in power since uh, 1913. But ridiculously, like what's insane is that whenever this conflict comes up, whenever it, it, it shifts again, almost invariably there is a war on the other side of it. And it's because the central bank is needed to fund the deficit. Like the, the, the more you f- simply force a country into debt, the more necessary and powerful the central banks are in that scenario because they need that financing and they can't get it from real resources. It's too expensive to do it with real capital. But I won't, I won't go into all the craziness with the Civil War, and I don't remember a lot of the specifics. I do remember like there were a lot of anomalies that I always thought were strange when I first started digging into this, like, like, uh, like Britain and France. Like There weren't a whole lot of countries prior to America that um, had gone through their, you know, abolitionist movement. Um, at France, I think, was the very first one that really outlawed, uh, in the early 1800s, outlawed slavery. Uh, and then Great Britain had done that too, uh, just shortly before the American Civil War. Like, it was just kind of cascading all at that time. And so you would think, like, when there was the competition between the, the Confederates who had their own currency and the Union that had their own currency, and the Union was doing greenbacks, um, and the Confederacy, if, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember exactly how their central banking system had actually worked out, but it was crazy how many times like currency was such a major player. Like, uh, uh, what was the what was the country? I mean, country. What was the state? It's like Tennessee. Um, when, when Tennessee was taken over by the Union, uh, one of the very first things is they implemented a uh, they implemented a central bank and they made the local currency illegal specifically just to send everybody into poverty 
Like they were just like, we're going to obliterate you. And so much of the actual conflict was through the wars, excuse me, was through the currencies. And it was actually because, um, you know, back to the France and Britain thing is that of all things, the, the ones that supposedly had gone to their abolitionists, they'd already outlawed slavery. You would think obviously they would side with the union, right? Well, they, 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 they were supporting the Confederacy. Um, and it, for, again, I, guess I wish I had specifics. I shouldn't have brought it up because I don't have it. Um, but uh, it was because of the deep currency and, and deficit ties. They were trying to get funding for the war. And uh, towards the end of the war, it was actually Confederate, the, the Confederate dollar, um, or whatever it's called, uh, was actually losing a massive amount of power, like purchasing power. And uh, I think that was a huge, huge contributor to their actual um, uh, fall. But shockingly, the like they were. I just thought that was so strange that Great Britain and France would be siding with the Confederacy. And I never really believed some of the minor, like like the excuses they had. Even though there's a lot of stuff aligning with them uh, that could have contributed to it, I, I really, I've always wondered if currency played a much, much tighter role in exactly why all of that played out the way it did. But, you know, I keep going. Like, like we've got, there's so many of these. And, you know, the first, I just think it, there's no way it's a coincidence. And, and I know it's just not a coincidence because it's a, it's a consequence of a, a war over money. Some, and, and we saw the same thing during the 30s. That's what led to all these crazy tensions with hyperinflations in the Weimar Republic and um, uh, uh, France was going through like hardcore devaluations and because of the Great Depression was getting unrolled. A bunch of countries were getting, uh, they, were, they were at each other's throats with tariffs um, and, and it just kind of cascaded until like, uh, I think it was something like a fifth of world, like, like global trade shut down because of tariffs and restrictions and capital controls because everybody got defensive about their own currencies to protect their, uh, their individual interests. The First World War started a year after the Federal Reserve was implemented. Remember, there was no such thing as a world war before that. And the Federal Reserve became and has been the largest central bank that has ever existed. And our, our situation today looks eerily similar to what was going on in the 30s. Um, leading up to the Second World War is you've got, you've got all these trade wars, you've got this retaliation, you've got a lot of pressures wanting to force change in the global currency space. Um, and all the countries are getting defensive. They're, they're you know, working against each other. We're like we're kind of moving back towards isolationism. We're seeing a steep decline. And this just uh, not even just because of COVID, but obviously um, COVID exacerbates this to an insane degree. Um, a huge decline in global trade, um, which I think is going to continue to raise tensions. But the, the point is here in the conflict, I think I've gone a little bit too long down this rabbit hole. But the point is, is that in these conflicts, in these battles, all the banks need to stay on top is to be financing them. And they don't really have a skin in, have skin in the game as far as who is going to win it as long as they've financed both sides. And this is not an uncommon thing throughout history. Now, I hope, I really hope that, you know, pulling people away from in Congress and the incentives of Bitcoin um, uh, 
you know, like uh, flippening essentially like the mindset and people becoming like passive supporters and, and the fact that like during that war of attrition type uh, mindset that if, if they can add supporter, if Bitcoin can add supporters profitably, like that's a great dynamic to like hit on in the article that I really, really enjoyed. But I think also the comparison to Vietnam is interesting like from an analogy point of view because yes vietnam won but after two incredibly long disastrous conflicts with larger powers so it's like okay well yeah but like i i do think that we will have a conflict like this is about whether or not the nation can run a deficit and like that that's at the heart of everything of the whole collectivist idea of the United States being able to politically, it's the, it's the neutering of the political sphere. They would not be nearly as relevant or as important or even seen as they matter if they cannot just, just, just pay for things without caring how much it costs. So they've become the center of our world. They have become the most important people. They have become the most important positions. They are, they are the people that if you don't listen to them, they will ruin your life. They tell you where you can get health care, what you can do, what you can't do. They permit whether or not you can get a license or not. Like They've become the center of the sphere of influence. And that is because they can steal through inflation. Is because they have the ability to just promise crap and give it to people and through an incredibly sneaky mechanism of just slowly of just siphoning the money and the value away from the economy and from the global economy um from influence over every country that has to do business in the dollars which it, it, I, i've heard varying percentages but i think it's like somewhere around 80 percent of the freaking world like international trade is done in dollars that is the scope of which they get to just just pay for things without any cost whatsoever without the ability to have that deficit there's going to be there's going to be incredible turmoil um just just like you know during like 2009 or whatever like i think it was like michigan was like having to cut like this tiny like sliver of like state benefits and stuff. And they had riots. They had like people were freaking out. Like imagine to think that you're going to have to cut healthcare. Like you can't afford people's healthcare. You can't afford um, pensions and retirements. Like you don't get around the fact that when the, the, the normal economy, when the actual productive economy has to go into like is in 30%, 35% unemployment that the government doesn't cut a single job. Like they don't get that benefit anymore. That is an unbelievable, powerful thing. And there's going to be crazy unrest because the, the public is not going to understand. It's going to be so easy to demonize. Um, and you know what happened in the thirties? They outlawed and confiscated gold. Like, I don't see how that is not on the table this time. Uh, like historically, it's when things get really bad, when poverty increases very heavily, and you have these huge shifts. It's 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 never just fizzle, you know. Like I hope so. I hope this article is right. I hope Jesse is onto something, and that the incentives are so strong, and that the 
the, the support can move so quickly in Bitcoin's direction that it makes it difficult for them to demonize um, or that it makes it, you know, like Congress or the powers that be, uh, as it were, um, are, are not even against this thing, that they're, they're there to make a profit and that the incentives are aligned. I mean, that's why I'm betting on this. That's why I think like, yes, like that is how this will unfold in the grander sense. But just because I think incentives and time is, are on our side, I don't think that means it's not going to look, it's not going to be messy. It's not going to be a huge conflict. Um, I mean, I genuinely, I mean, I'm genuinely inclined to think that the United States might not be a country, um, that we will break up into, uh, multiple, um, like if, if the currency breaks down, like, and we can't pay for deficits, like, I don't see how we stay the United States of America. Um, I see it becoming a much, uh, looser, uh, affiliation of states um, it'll still be largely friendly to each other you know pretty god there won't be some psychotic civil war or something um, but I, I, I find it really hard to believe that we can actually sustain this like if you actually look in history like at what happens when this level of imbalance is like occurs like the country doesn't look the same in a decade or two like it just doesn't like I don't I don't know of a good example of a country coming to a head in the same way that we have uh, with both its currency, its banking system and the unbelievable deficits. And, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh, like there's there's never been one with as far of a reach and as great of an importance in the global landscape as the United States. And we're not immune to this. It's not like this is a special time in history where things are so freaking different that, you know, nothing could go wrong and we can just repair everything and, you know, patch it back together. Like, we have impossible deficits. We just do. So what happens historically when you have impossible deficits? What happens historically when the, the jurisdiction of a, or the sovereignty of a central bank issuing a country's deficits uh, is threatened. Uh, like, like, what are the general consequences? And the general consequences are huge conflicts. Um, uh, whether they be war of attrition style conflicts, whether it be great depressions, whether it be, um, you know, international like feuds and that sort of thing, like a confiscation of gold, like it's just never pretty. Um, and I don't know of a good example in which that wasn't the case um maybe maybe there are maybe you know it's not like i know everything about history i have like slivers of things typically that are just there to reinforce my bias because i specifically looked for the damn thing um so i'm not saying that like i have the answers on all of this i just don't see it as so much different that we would somehow be able to avoid it this time when it's governments historically don't let their monopolistic authority don't let their largest uh, like uh, th their largest source of purchasing power and political authority just wither away uh, i don't see that happening without a fight all dystopian sci-fi and all that crap aside i am admittedly hopeful that it might not. You know, we've got a special weapon. <laughs> I 
this time. Like, the means of defense is very different. Um, and, like, that is the black swan in trying to, you know, look back in history and then fold it over and lay it on our future is, you know, conditions aren't the same. You know, you could, you could say the same thing about, you know, Spanish Reformation and uh, the Age of Enlightenment, that like, those things would not have, you know, if you look backward in history without really addressing the printing press, the growing literacy, the, the breaking of the monopoly on the church, if you didn't really think about the implications of the new technology and the new environment in the field, you could have easily been led to the conclusion that, you know, an entirely different set of outcomes were going to unfold. But they didn't. And I think we had a far better results from, like, we had a, we had a massive liberation during the conflicts nonetheless, but the end result was a world far better, uh, far more informed, far more independent, far more sovereign than the one that had been left. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin is going to be an incredibly powerful tool for that. The internet is an incredibly powerful tool for that. Um, and regardless of whether it comes with a conflict or, you know, it just fizzles out, you know, it doesn't happen with a bang, uh, but with a snicker, uh, shit, I hope he's right. Absolutely. Like, if, if I had to say which one do I wish would happen, I have absolutely no, incl I don't give a shit if we don't get no attachment to a sci-fi dystopia whatsoever. I pray and hope that this is exactly how it will play out. But I also want to be realistic and I do not want to be caught with my pants down if it doesn't just happen that way. Um, and, and I'm not very trustworthy of governments or central banking institutions from the history of them. I do know they seem like the, that seems like the opposite and absolute worst strategy to take is that let's just assume they won't put up a fight and that the incentives will be such that, uh, you know, this will be easy going. But fingers crossed. Fingers freaking crossed on that one. Okay. Well, this was fun. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this article, and I, I hate that I didn't get to this sooner because uh, when Jesse sent it to me, I was like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. Um, and, and I love debating about this stuff. Again, this is all just speculative stuff. It's like the stock to flow thing. There's no proving it one way or the other. I mean, just wait. Yeah, we just will find out one day uh, whether or not um, central banks or governments did anything about it. But that was that's that's what makes it such a fun thought experiment, you know. Uh, so a huge thank you to Jesse Lawler um, uh, for writing this article. I will be sure to drop. Um, oh, I didn't. Oh, I'm not signed in. That's why. Um, I, I will make sure to drop the link so you can check it out um, and follow him on Twitter at Lawlerpalooza. I will have those both of those links available. And you can drop some applause on this piece uh, on Medium. That's where he posted it. Uh, and with that, we'll close this one out. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, today's article again, the Bitcoin at government battle is vaporware. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's debate it. Join us in the crypto economy crew and let's, let's take it down. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, again, I'll have all these links uh, so you can check all this stuff out and drop some applause. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, don't forget, if you haven't started your Swan Bitcoin savings account, your Bitcoin savings plan. You are failing. 
hit it up at swanbitcoin.com slash buy. And, you know, I was actually chatting with one of the guys with Brady, uh, works over there. One beautiful thing, fees are high right now on the Bitcoin network. We got a lot of bloat and, uh, you know, uh, uh, backlog in the MIM space, which is actually great. I think this is aligning incentives properly and we sh the, we need some pushes like this to really align things and make things as efficient as possible. But beautiful thing, uh, Swan Bitcoin does not charge you withdrawal fees. When you set up your auto withdrawal, you get the amount of money that you have in Swan Bitcoin. They want you to hold your own keys. So you auto buy, you auto stack every day, every week, every month, whatever it is, and you auto withdraw. And very soon they're going to have one time buys. So if you want to go up there and you just want to buy $500 worth in your savings plan, do it. Um, and uh, they are supporting the show. They are supporting the audible of the Bitcoin space. So always got to give them a shout out and some love. Uh, start your plan at swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And uh, yeah, they'll know that you sent, they'll know that I sent you. And I get some sats. They throw me some sats my way. Whoa, whoa. All right. Don't forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. That is what we are. That is what we do. We turn the best in Bitcoin into the audio versions they deserve. I am Guy Swan, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Don't forget to subscribe, to share, to spread this out to everybody you know in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space. And until next time, take it easy, guys.